I'm Daniel Levine, and this is the Bio Report. Sandbox AQ, the alphabet spinout backed with $500 million in investment, in June 2023 unveiled its AQ Biosim division. The division is working to bring Sandbox AQ's AI and quantum-inspired computing to develop new treatments for intractable medical conditions, including neurodegenerative diseases and cancer. The company is working with leading drug developers and university medical centers to accelerate drug development, reduce cost, and improve the rate of clinical successes. We spoke to Nadia Heron, General Manager of Simulation and Optimization for Sandbox AQ, about the challenges of drug development it's seeking to address, how Sandbox AQ is leveraging quantum technologies, and why it's seeking to tackle a challenging set of diseases. One note, as we were preparing to publish this episode, Sandbox AQ announced it acquired Good Chemistry, a computational chemistry company that leverages AI, quantum, and other advanced technologies to accelerate drug discovery. The deal is expected to enhance Sandbox AQ's existing computational chemistry and simulation capabilities, adding talent, technologies, and industry insights. Nadia, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much, Daniel. Nice to speak with you. We're going to talk about drug development, the use of AI to do simulations and optimization, and Sandbox AQ's efforts to bring what's been dubbed quantum-inspired computing to drug development. Before we talk about drug development and Sandbox AQ, though, I thought it would be useful if you can start by talking a little about how Sandbox AQ came about. Absolutely, happy to. So Sandbox has a very interesting story in that we were founded inside of Alphabet about four or five years ago. Um, When Alphabet formed as a unit, our CEO, now CEO, Jack Hittery, was hired by Sergey Brin, one of the co-founders of Google, to incubate a number of technologies at the nexus of physics and AI. So those technologies are in cybersecurity, quantum sensing to make medical devices and quantum navigation, as well as simulation and optimization techniques where um, that was just getting off the ground because we didn't necessarily have all the hardware requirements to do what we can do today in terms of breadth of capabilities. And so those technologies have incubated inside of Google for a number of years. And just last year, earlier on in the year, that's when we spun out. Um, We spun out, Eric Schmidt joined as the chairman of our board. Um, and you know, we we brought with us a number of our team members, our very ambitious team members that that spun out of the moonshot factory of all places at at Google um, to do what we do now. So so that's a bit of our origin story. And um, some of the reasons we spun out was really to be you know independent 
um, from Google, from Alphabet, to be on multiple clouds, to really engage in all sectors with all customer types. And we've really been able to do that. Sandbox has raised $500 million and has been able to attract some high profile investors. Who's backing the company and, and how is that money being used? Yeah, sure. Uh, so uh, as I mentioned, Eric Schmidt is the chairman. Um, it, Mark Benioff is one of our investors, Thomas Tull, Jim Breyer. Uh, we have institutional investors such as T. Rob Price. Um, very, very savvy folks and groups who um, know that it won't take you know, a, a few months in a garage with a couple of folks to build a SaaS product. This is a five to 10 year commitment to fundamentally change and protect entire industries. And so they're really here with us for the long haul. Um, how is that capital being used? So it's an interesting question. Our company employs um, quite a large number of PhDs. Um, they are not cheap. <laughs> so it, it is used on, on human resources. Uh, it is used on compute resources. It is used to um, bring together partnerships um, and, and, and bring in acquisition targets and things of that nature. So it's really capital deployed to grow the business. The technology is being used to address a variety of challenges in many different areas. Why the focus on drug discovery and, and why would you say so many drugs fail in development today? Yeah, we think about the failure in two ways. Um, so one is that the journey from target to indication is very slow and error prone, right? Um, we know that this is the case because we see the failures down the road and so forth. Um, and what happens on, you know, in a normal drug discovery case, as soon as you optimize for something, it's like a game of whack-a-mole. You know, so you throw something else out of funk. Um, and, and this is just kind of the, the process and it's very serial and you sort of have to go back to the beginning. And this is why it takes 10, 15 years to bring a drug to market. So we think that we need better leads sooner. Um, and we, we also believe that if we could optimize for multiple parameters at the same time, instead of serially, this would dramatically address that point. Um, the second piece is that most drugs fail because they were designed poorly in the first place. So we believe that this is because most therapeutic hypotheses are wrong. And what we do instead is we adapt the in silico test to measure the effect of the intervention. And so, you know, what, what typically happens on the bench top, you can overcome in silico by applying some of the techniques that we are. And, you know, you asked why a drug discovery. Um, the bar is just so low. <laughs> and, and, you know, just simply put, um, just any amount of improvement to that process is going to be helpful um, when something costs billions of dollars, takes 10 plus years and has such a high failure rate. So the bar is very low, but I will say that we also are using very similar techniques for materials discovery, chemistry discovery when it comes to um, catalysts and battery chemistries. And we're, we're also deploying some of our optimization techniques to the financial industry as well when it comes to portfolio optimization or index tracking. So, you know, while the, the most mature area of our focus is in drug discovery, we see a lot of application in other industries as well that my group works on. 
So are you learning from what you're doing in other areas that are that is informing drug discovery at the same time or, or vice versa? It's, it's vice versa, um, but the methods are quite complementary. And so we look for ways to expand them across the board in these new application regimes. So at the top, I mentioned that Sandbox AQ is doing what's described as quantum-inspired computing. C- can you unravel that term? Sure. So quantum-inspired computing refers to algorithms, which are based around the manipulation of entanglement. So entanglement is this quantum principle, um, but it, it uses entanglement as a simulated resource on classical hardware rather than a physical one on quantum hardware. So these are algorithms that we have and can utilize if necessary, particularly in areas where simulated entanglement can expose algorithmic simplifications, which would not have been obvious. But very generally speaking, though, we have identified industries where the excitement around quantum computing has exposed the need for new simulation tools in general. And these are the drug discovery areas where simulation experiments can reduce the cost in time by millions of dollars and years, right? Because of that kind of multi-parameter optimization I mentioned before, things of that nature. And so these improvements in AI combined with classical modeling of classical systems and physics-based algorithms in general are allowing us to make disruptive impact to these industries, even without these quantum computers. So, you know, we say quantum inspired because we're borrowing from the principles of quantum hardware. Um, But really what we're doing is simulating on classical hardware, the quantum physics of molecules and their targets. Does that make sense or is that confusing? (laughs) It makes sense, but, and and this is way beyond my, my expertise and understanding, but what do you do to enable the use of more conventional computer hardware to be able to do this? Yeah. So, you know, as we, we take advantage of TPUs and GPUs as an example, right? Um, and, And this enables us to do very fast parallel computations. Um, so, so that that's kind of that's the hardware requirement, and then the software requirement is that everything happens in the cloud. And, and I guess this goes back to what you were alluding to earlier, but that biology is complex, and that when you change one thing, it can have an effect on many different things at once. So mm-hmm. the effort here is to is this more of a systems biology approach? Yeah, I wouldn't quite describe it as a systems biology approach. Really, it's a quantum mechanical approach. So, you know, what what we're doing is looking at the molecular interactions down to the atomic level. And when you can run, it's it's sort of like a, a volumes game. You're running so many simulations, billions of times, billions of permutations that you can in effect, piece together what is actually going on. So it's that culmination of all of those simulations being put together that gives you a very grounded picture of reality. And is the expectation that you would eventually move to quantum computers when that becomes feasible? 
Um, that's an interesting question. Um, maybe it really depends on the utility of quantum computing for the specific areas that we focus on, be it in drug discovery or chemical simulation or financial simulations. We don't imagine that when quantum computers become available, they'll be useful for every type of problem and every type of calculation that will probably just not be efficient um, because a quantum calculation is likely to be expensive and you would only want to use that quantum computer when you absolutely, when you know, you've sort of maxed out the, the potential of a classical computer, right? And so we think that many of these equations are still going to be more efficient to run on a classical computer. So we imagine a hybrid mode where you do part part of a calculation on a classical computer and then part on a quantum computer. And there's some hybrid that takes place, at least in the beginning. Um, but we we see ourselves as like being set up to to um, really push the performance and the limits of classical hardware up to and including quantum computing when they do become available. Technology aside, at, at the end of the day, the goal here is to get to better drugs faster and, and cheaper. Is that, is that fair? That's fair. Yes. Okay. So <laughs> is there any way at this point to quantify what the expectation is, how this would accelerate drug development? Yes, I think the most obvious opportunity is in the high rate of efficacy failures at phase two. So by lowering the bar needed to attack difficult drug targets, we can lower that percentage meaningfully. Um, and this is because the computational platform is inherently more flexible than a benchtop platform, right? And lower cost to reconfigure versus this traditional kind of drug discovery setup. Um, I think our proposal to hard link simulation data with clinical and project specific data uh, together with biochemistry into the clinic is unique. And what we're seeing with our partners so far is that instead of taking six to seven years before enabling them to file an IND, we can more expeditiously move through the development and preclinical phase in under one to two years. I would say aspirationally, the goal is one year. Um, so, you know, that's that's as much as we can we can talk about now in terms of quantification, but I hope to have um, better news for you next year. Okay. You're certainly not alone in applying AI to drug discovery and development. It's, it's becoming ubiquitous. Is there something different or unique about Sandbox AQ's approach compared to what other folks are doing with AI? Yeah, interesting question. Um, you know, AI has really come a long way. We saw just a few months ago, a company for the first time filed their phase two um, for a drug that was completely designed by a computer. Um, but, you know, we, we think of ourselves as using a physics first approach where we, we create data from physics simulations of targets and then we apply AI to that data to explore the chemical space, but then exploit specific areas that we should be focusing on to optimize drug properties we're looking for. Um, we believe that this is a better approach because AI alone so far has not been shown to get us all the way into a drug that has been better designed. And, you know, part of that is just the challenge of AI in and of itself, where it requires prior data in order to be useful. 
right? And because we can create this synthetic data, we're able to investigate novel system in areas where others have tried and failed. Um, so, so to me, that's that's quite a big differentiator because I, you know, the the capabilities of AI and drug discovery and and drug design are going to be somewhat limited in this in this capacity. Give me a sense of the process. What are you, what is your system doing to simulate and optimize the discovery of a drug, and, and what are the inputs into that, and what are the outputs? Mm-hmm. Yeah, great question. So our software computes the free energy of binding between molecules using novel approaches that improve upon speed and accuracy and the need for input data compared to the previous state of art. We combine these techniques um, with AI approaches, connecting these results to clinical and project-specific data. So this is, um, you know, biological data, um, biochemical data, just, you know, the other data that exists about that particular system and enables a comprehensive view, including biology, biochemistry, and clinical data. In terms of the starting point, um, we would usually begin with a specific target. Alternatively, we sometimes begin with a specific molecule with an observed clinical efficacy, but whose target is not known or for which an application is sought. Um, but an input would typically be structural information about a target and a library of drug-like molecules to check, though we're actively working to relax the need for either of those two things. So you know, many of our algorithms do indeed use an active learning approach to improve over time from past results. So, so that's kind of the general process at a high level. And at some point, do you move from in silico to a wet lab? And if you do that, does that data get fed back into the platform? Yes, wet lab experiments are used to validate the in silico test results. Uh, the idea there, though, is we would be reducing the amount of wet lab experiments necessary. And, and that's part of how we shorten the timeline. And, and generally those results are fed back into the system. Um, and, and wet lab, of course, it's, it's useful for unusual chemistries in particular. You're focusing on difficult drug discovery in areas like cancer and neurodegenerative disease around what's been referred to as undruggable targets. It's a phrase I've always enjoyed because I guess it's undruggable until you drug it, but yeah. what what is an undruggable target? Yeah, it's a bit of a misnomer because as you alluded to, it's actually not undruggable, but it just means that the target is challenging due to a variety of reasons. So some of these reasons are it lacks well-defined binding sites. Um, where the you know the druggable pocket is not easy to discover, uncover, and using the you know the the wet lab tools that we have today, um, some of those other attributes are cellular accessibility, um, where we just cannot locate it. It's the the targets are buried within cellular compartments. Um, there's protein dynamics where the conformation is constantly shifting, so it's a moving target literally. Um, biochemical nature. So RNA and DNA, um, these are traditionally difficult to interact with targets. Um, and then, you know, there's, there's safety and toxicity 
concern. Sometimes a target is theoretically druggable, but modulating it could lead to other downstream effects that are unwanted. Um, and so there's just a variety of reasons why things are considered undruggable. However, that's where we there exists the greatest potential to drug. And one of the, the ways that we approach this is by understanding the mechanism of action. Um, this is not the thing that's gonna, you know, be the, the, the attribute that gets you to phase one quicker, but it, scientifically it helps you unlock how to treat these kinds of targets so that you can actually design a better drug. Um, so we find this step to be pretty critical to, to really uncover what the mechanism of action is so that you can turn undruggable targets into druggable ones. You, you or, say, or decide if you or decide if you're just wasting your time and should move on. <laughs> yeah. You say you're doing that because it's the area of greatest opportunity, but mm -hmm. you know it, it's also a a high stakes risk. Would you know why not start with maybe lower fruit just to validate the approach? Yeah, yeah. So certainly, undruggable diseases is not the only thing we focus on. Um, but the reason we choose to highlight that frequently is, is just simply because the statistics are staggering. When you read about 200 plus failed trials for Alzheimer's and hundreds of cancers where there aren't any promising alternatives. Um, and because our unique approach allows us to operate in areas where there isn't any clinical data to work off of in the case of a first in class molecule, uh, it's uniquely positioned to work on some of these undruggable areas. So, so that's why we choose to to highlight there, but certainly we also work on, um, you know, classically druggable pockets and so forth. We see a lot of efforts to marry AI to drug discovery and, and development. And one of the challenges of this is really cultural and getting the teams right in terms of expertise around different disciplines and different cultures. How has Sandbox AQ addressed the issue of of getting the right people, the right mix of, of people? Yeah. yeah, that's a very interesting question. Um, Sandbox itself is so unique in that we're an incredibly innovative company, constantly pushing the edge of technology. And when you're trying to pull the future forward and change the world, the team is just hands down make or break. And so one of the things we really pride ourselves on is having built a diverse team of folks from a multitude of disciplines and seeing just the breakthroughs that come out at the intersection of those disciplines, whether it's putting together chemists with physicists and medicinal chemists, um, with biologists and so forth, and, and AI experts, that, that is where we see the, just that confluence of disciplines working together, giving us the, the, the breakthroughs uh, in science. And the, I would say the things that we focus on broadly as a company, but in particular on the simulation and optimization team, we focus very much on mindset. Um, and one of these is, is, I think, inherent to the team, which is that, you know, folks are very ambitious, big thinkers that, you know, I described a bit of the history where we came out of the moonshot factory at Google. And if that wasn't ambitious enough, you know, <laughs> we're, we're tackling these massive problems. And I think everyone just has a real drive to impact society. Um, so so that, that certainly helps in terms of a mindset. And folks are very focused on being pace setters and having this transformative impact. Um, 
the other two pieces I would say is one is a focus on having a learning culture. Um, you know, we we typically have uh, folks go back to school and learn new things if if that's what's necessary. But we're always asking each other questions. We're always learning from each other. We're, we're always you know, reading the latest literature and implementing what we're learning. And so this learning culture enables us to really stay ahead of things and create new ideas and build upon the work of others. Um, and the third I would say is, is with respect to risk taking. So it's not just about tolerating, but inviting scientific risk taking so that we can reach new boundaries. And I think there's a humility that comes with encouraging risk taking. It has to feel safe. Um, but, but it can't be so risky that everything is on the line. So we try to parallel path things as well. Um, and I would say like these are kind of the core tenets of our culture right now. I would also say that everyone on the team is just such a pleasure to work with. <laughs> you know, it, it's just such a nice group of people um, and, and just a real pleasure to work at the company. I think everyone kind of has that feeling uh when we get together for offsites and things like that um so I, you know i think it's looking for these cultural attributes and that humility has been has been a lot of it and, and do you find as you interact with different divisions within aq is there you know is there something different about the drug discovery group from say the climate change group yeah, we have our quantum sensing group, our quantum navigation group, our, our security teams, a little bit, you know, it depends on on where um, each group is is currently, uh, you know, um, experiencing their, ma their major thrust. So in some groups, it's heavy on engineering um, and that engineering focus and drive. But I, I think holistically, these are common threads across the board. Um, we, we do actually encourage people to, you know, even though we run and operate like several different businesses all under one roof, many folks are cross-disciplinary and, you know, they share these characteristics um, across the teams. And so you would think that there would be more of a difference, but there's actually not. And, and what's the business model? Is, is the idea here to operate as a service? Do you take a stake in molecules you discover or might sandbox someday build a pipeline or spin out companies mm -hmm. yeah great question um so we're an end-to-end -end service provider which means it's a mix of professional services and SaaS based solutions we take the software ip and our customers retain the drug ip and we do not currently have plans to have a therapeutics arm so that is a key differentiator for a lot of our customers is that we're not in direct competition with them Given that you may be producing molecules of extraordinary value, how do you think about pricing and, and how you work with companies? We take a flexible approach. Um, you know, the fact that we are capitalized well for the long term enables us some flexibility in how we can think about pricing, but we, we do believe that if we are, you know, a big part of the process that enables a company or an entity to find a molecule that they wouldn't have otherwise found that, you know, having some milestone um, earnouts from that particular engagement is appropriate. 
the pace of innovation is astounding and it appears to be accelerating. It seems there's potential to greatly expand the number of experimental drugs in the clinic and improve the rate of success. But what we've seen with powerful platform technologies in the past is that the rate limiting be steps become the, the financing of these in the clinical development and, and regulatory constraints. We've seen the FDA roughly approve 50 novel therapies a year. Do you see that changing in a significant way with AI? That's an interesting question. Um, and I've sort of studied this a little bit. Uh, you know, typically you see the FDA approve area, like in radiology, for example, that's the biggest area that has encouraged you uptake of AI. And that's the biggest growing, fastest growing area that you see the FDA approvals in. So I think um, some of it will come for FDA with respect to adoption. Um, you know, the more drugs are created with AI or, or have utilized AI in the process of creating them or have AI in some other part of the process, whether it's, you know, a virtual benchtop or, you know, some of the other things companies are working on. I think as that increases, that adoption rate will encourage others to, to follow suit. Um, but clinical phases are not going away, right? I mean, you still have to prove things that work in humans and, uh, you know, I don't see that part going away. We, we have seen virtual arms of trials and things like that. Um, but, but I do still think that's going to be the majority of the time and cost and the rate limiting step, if you will, going forward. Um, that's probably not going to change anytime soon. But where there's potential is if we can utilize the corpus of failed clinical trial data um, in combination with the human data, much of what is sitting inside the walls of private institutions, and utilize AI to piece together those key elements of clinical data and link it to this biological biochemical data. That might be able to lead us to a place where we can design more specialized clinical trials. So instead of having hundreds of people that we have to study and that being a very expensive trial that takes a number of years, of course, follow-up is follow-up, um, but barring that, you know, we could at least endeavor to reduce the number to say like 50 people um, where, you know, we've qualified so much of it in advance that we only have to test in the small subpopulation. Uh, I, I can see that as a big potential for AI being able to play a role. Nadia Heron, Sandbox AQ's General Manager of Simulation and Optimization. Nadia, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. Thanks for listening. The Bio Report is a production of the Levine Media Group. To automatically download this podcast each week, subscribe to our RSS feed or through iTunes or other podcast manager. To join our mailing list, go to levinemediagroup.com. We'd love to hear from you. If you want to drop us a line or are interested in sponsoring this podcast, send email to danny at levinemediagroup.com. Special thanks to Jonah Levine, who composed our theme music, and the Jonah Levine Collective, which performs it.